All right, well, good morning, everyone. I want to get us started promptly so that we can maximize our time with our terrific speaker. Thank you all very much for being here as we continue today our three-part series on the 40th president of the United States, Ronald Reagan. It's my great pleasure to welcome back to St. John's for the second talk in this three-part series, Professor Tim Naftali, my old friend. Many of you will remember that Tim was with us some years ago when our focus was on our 37th president, Richard Nixon, and at the time, Tim was the director of the Richard Nixon Presidential Library and Museum in California. Tim was actually the founding director of that library and museum, and he had a number of major accomplishments during his tenure, including the release of about 1.3 million documents from the Nixon presidency, as well as 700 hours of Nixon tapes. Currently, as we were just discussing, he's at New York University, where he is both a clinical associate uh, professor of public service and also a clinical associate professor of history as well as, if that's not enough, the director of the university's public policy major. Not only is Tim an expert on presidential history, he is also an expert on international history, national security, and intelligence policy as we were just discussing. And in that regard, he is the uh, co-author of the prize-winning book, One Hell of a Gamble, Khrushchev, Castro, and Kennedy, 1958 to 1964. He was a consultant in the 9-11 Commission. He's also a consultant that terrific CNN series, Tricky Dick, and also to the Netflix series, Designated Survivor. We were just talking about what a wonderful life he has had and what interesting experiences he's had. Tim earned his undergraduate degree from Yale and his PhD in history from Harvard. And with that, please join me in welcoming back Tim Niftali. Well, it is a real pleasure to be back here. Uh, as I mentioned to Clark, I, when, we, when I walked into this gorgeous room, I said, now Clark, I've been here before, but I've not been here before. The last time I spoke, I spoke downstairs. It really doesn't matter, but now it is very nice. It's, it, it's, and I'm not saying it has anything to do with the presidency I was talking about last time, but it was gloomy, a little gloomy down there. Uh, um, I, I, I did not run the, the Reagan Library, um, and I just wanted to say, I, just a few months ago, uh, I was, uh, was actually in a gym, and I get a note from someone I went to school with at SICE, I went to SICE here in D.C., and the person was saying, it's so nice to see you, and I, you know, it's great, you haven't heard from somebody in uh, 30 years, and you wonder, well, that's nice, I wonder how they're doing. And, and, they, and the person's writing, and, and, then, and then they get to the point. They said, well, we're, we're not very far away, and we were wondering if we could visit. Uh, I should tell you, I'm in a gym in Palm Springs. And I'm thinking, well, how would you know that I'm in Palm Springs? And they said, well, we're in Simi Valley. And I, I said, well, why? And then they, they thought I was the director of the Reagan Library. And they thought I was still there. And so I first had to say, A, I, I'm not in the presidential library business anymore, and in any case, I was never the director of the Reagan Library. So I'm, I'm, I'm here to talk about Reagan nevertheless, um, and I shall. About a year after his defeat in a landslide by Ronald Reagan, Jimmy Carter woke up in the middle of the night and told Rosalind that he had little interest in a presidential library, a monument to himself, and prepared to spend his time and the money of his supporters more effectively to focus on the present and the future, not the past. Uh, and so he created the Carter Center. 
His first presidential library director told me that Carter felt his own presidency had been a failure and he had no interest in a museum to it. I am starting with Jimmy Carter because he has just entered, as I'm sure all of you know, hospice care and we are likely about to be thinking and talking about his entire life of service to this nation and God, not just to the presidency as I'm sure he would prefer. I also mention him because the legacy of Ronald Reagan as a president was in no small way affected uh, by what came before him, especially the failures of the Carter presidency. In 1980, Ronald Reagan asked Americans, are you better off today than you were four years ago? Now let's talk about some of the indicators of 1980 when he asked that question of the American people. Some of you may remember that. The prime interest rate was 15.26%. It is 7.75% at the moment. It's pretty high, but it's still nothing like it was in 1980. Inflation was 12.5% in 1980. It is 6.41% now and appears to be dropping. Civilian unemployment was 7.1% in 1980. It is 3.4% today. Um, the largely bipartisan economic consensus, then known as Keynesianism, had failed. You are not supposed to have, by the tenets of Keynesianism, high unemployment and high inflation simultaneously. There was even a new word created in the 1970s to explain this unexpected phenomenon. It was called stagflation. Some of you may remember that. The American people, understandably, saw experts as failing them. There was a sense of the failure of expertise because the country's finest economists couldn't explain the economic ditch that the American people by the way, not just the United States, other countries were similarly affected, that the American people found themselves in in 1980. This is a moment of great um, uncertainty about expertise, a sense that Washington had failed, that a consensus of Washingtonians from both parties had failed to deliver the most important requirements of leadership. I think that is important to keep in mind when we talk about the advent of the Reagan era. In foreign policy, the country in 1980 was still deeply divided over interventionism in the Cold War. We, of course, will call this the debate over Vietnam, but the whole issue was to what extent should this country intervene overseas as a means of fighting communism. Carter had reinstituted registration for the draft in reaction to the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. This was fresh in American minds. In the five years since all of Southeast Asia had uh, gone communist uh, by force of arms, the Soviets seemed to be making gains throughout what was then called the Third World and we now call the Global South. Nicaragua, Yemen, Angola, Mozambique, Guinea-Bissau, Congo, Madagascar, Ethiopia, Cap Verde, Benin, Sao Tome and Principe. Some of these are very small countries, 
But they are countries, and they're sovereign countries. They had all gone and become Marxist over the course of the 1970s. So if, if you thought of, of, of the balance of power in terms of colors on a map, the direction was not a healthy one for the United States. All of these changes in the global south occurred despite a US policy, bipartisan policy of detente, which was defined in terms of seeking arms control agreements with the Soviet Union to reduce the amount of nuclear danger. So it appeared, again, that the bipartisan foreign policy expert consensus was failing Americans. Another example of the sense that Washington was failing, that something needed to be, some change from outside Washington was required to restart the engine of American power and promise. And if all of that wasn't enough to be questioning expertise, 52 Americans were being held hostage in Tehran by the Islamic Republic of Iran. A superpower, a, actually without a doubt the most powerful country in the world, there was always concern about the Soviets, but the Soviets actually never became more powerful throughout the Cold War, as we learned in great detail when the Cold War ended and Soviet records were open briefly, but they were open for a little over a decade. Um, how could a superpower, a hyperpower almost, like the United States, have 52 people, its diplomats, who by the way are protected by international law. These were not 52, we were not engaged in a war, or we didn't think we were with Iran, and these were not POWs. These were 52 diplomats who were held hostage and the, the great American superpower could seemingly do nothing. And in 1980 there had been an effort, a noble one actually, to rescue the hostages that had failed. Not only had failed to bring back hostages, but actually left Americans dead. They were, their bodies were brought back, but the Americans died in Iran in an attempt to rescue those Americans. So there was a sense the world was going in the wrong direction, and, and, and what the US government was doing, it was doing badly. That's important to keep in mind um, when one thinks about 1980. Every expert underestimated Reagan including Carter, but not just dip Democrats. Centrists, moderate, and uh, they existed in this era, liberal Republicans, all underestimated Reagan. Although a divisive figure politically, uh, in some sense, Reagan, however, moved public opinion in a way that was remarkable and remains remarkable among American presidents. Um, I'm not a bully, and this isn't a bully pulpit. But we have a concept, when we think about presidents, of those presidents who can persuade. It's actually a wonderful and, I think, extremely healthy concept. Um, I think it's leadership. Um, but in your own minds, think about those presidents who have made you change your mind about something. I suspect most of you will find very few presidents who fit in that category. Um, Persuasion is an important skill of a, I think, of a great president. Um, and there is no question that Ronald Reagan had the, the power of persuasion. Um, John Kennedy had the power of persuasion. Franklin Roosevelt had the power of persuasion. Um, 
as a candidate, Barack Obama, I think, had the power of persuasion. But not many American presidents have had that. Um, Ronald Reagan's uh, ability to move Americans, especially early in his presidency, in ways that few presidents have, I believe, was the secret to how he became in public culture, popular culture at the time, and historically a gigantic Teflon presidential figure. Despite the fact that not, not only would he lose fights, but he actually would, and I'll discuss this, his policies would result in outcomes that were not the same as those as he promised. When we think about consequential modern presidents, and I define the modern president as president since Herbert Hoover, some have attained uh, consequential status um, because of foreign challenges. And I would put in that category Harry Truman, George H.W. Bush, and George W. Bush. And some attained the, the sort of that level of consequence uh, because of domestic challenges alone. I would put Gerald Ford, I put Bill Clinton, I put Barack Obama, and I put Donald Trump in that category. And Reagan joins the elite group of presidents who are consequential, however, for both domestic as well as foreign policy re reasons. And, and that group I would define as Franklin Roosevelt, John F. Kennedy, Richard Nixon, Carter, and Reagan. Now, greatness, notice I said consequential. I didn't say greatness. As I just mentioned Carter, and, and earlier I sadly noted that Carter himself thought his presidency was a failure. Greatness comes, I believe, in, in presidential matters uh, from the measures that one uses for success. And not all of these presidents were great presidents. They might have been great people, but they weren't great presidents. But we are talking about the significance of the decisions they made in charting a course for America. And Ronald Reagan's decisions shaped this country domestically and shaped its foreign policy in ways that will make him forever a consequential president. Now we'll talk about the issue of greatness. Ronald Reagan enjoyed a good role. But to see his decision to run for the presidency is just an attempt to make up for never even coming close to being nominated for an Oscar is to miss the basic integrity of the man. He believed in a few ideas, but powerfully, and believed that these ideas would benefit his country. It's as simple as that. Since I promised Clark uh, that I would give a 30-minute talk and, and, and not a standard lecture, it's very dangerous to invite professors or whatever I am, a clinical professor. I don't wear a white coat. It just means, it just means I'm not tenured. Um, it's very dangerous to invite us to give talks because they become lectures. But, but I'm, I'm reading a sort of a script that I've written to keep me, to make sure that we have time for questions. That's the point here. Um, I will return to Reagan's definition of his America when considering his legacy today and in the future. But I want to take him on his own terms first, which I think is really important when assessing a president. Take them at the, on their own terms, 
and how they define themselves and, and the world they wish to shape. So on his own terms, Ronald Reagan saw two main goals. First, to reduce the weight of the federal government on ordinary Americans, as he defined by taxes and regulation. And two, to defeat communism without war. On those two terms, Reagan achieved what he set out to do. He maintained a laser-like focus on those two objectives, and by 1988 had managed to achieve them, but in those strict, narrow terms. Fewer regulations, lower taxes, and the defeat of communism. Reagan's popularity um, was a product of not simply uh, playing to a base. Um, what Ronald Reagan did was he accelerated the end of the essential coalition at the heart of the Democratic Party. The process that started in 1963 when John F. Kennedy embraced legislative civil rights. It sped up under Johnson with the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act and was helped along then by Nixon's Southern strategy. But Ronald Reagan effectively ended the conservative wing of the Democratic Party by recruiting them. Now, Democrat, uh, Southern Democrats didn't disappear overnight. Um, at the, but when Ronald Reagan came to power, a third of the Democratic Party was conservative. By the end of the Reagan years, many of them had actually switched parties. Or even though they hadn't switched parties, they routinely voted with the Republican president. That happened under Reagan. And that was a source of Reagan's ability to get bipartisan legislative pa legislation passed when Republicans did not control the House. Democrats controlled the House. It's Reagan's ability to achieve bipartisan legislative success that made him a powerful political figure in this town. Now, when we think of bipartisanship today, we're normally thinking in terms of centrist or even at times maybe slightly left, center-left achievements. In 1980, bipartisanship meant conservative legislative victories, conservative Democrats voting with Republicans. And Ronald Reagan created a coalition that was very powerful, that made possible the tax cuts of 1981, and then further individual tax cuts in 1986, and a whole host of deregulation of the banking industry. That's what made Reagan powerful. In this town, presidents are as powerful as the legislation they get passed. And Reagan, in the early going in his administration, was incredibly successful at getting his economic agenda, especially tax reform, but also his budget, early on, his budget's passed. Now, what did he achieve? By the end of his administration, the prime interest rate was 9.32%, still higher than it is today. But in the context of 1988, seemed really good. Inflation was 4.4%, and unemployment was 5.5%. So with the exception of the inflation number, none of the numbers associated with the Reagan era are as good as the numbers in the Biden era. But our politics have changed. Um, History, of course, is more complicated. Reagan, however, was not. 
He resisted thinking in terms of trade-offs. He refused to accept that Washington needed to make choices between a big military and tax cutting if one was to avoid a, a huge deficit. He refused to accept that opening the country to free trade or freer trade would result in the slow disappearance of the jobs of his most fervent supporters, American blue-collar workers. Or the deregulation would lead to more opportunities for con men to prey on the consumers. And that the country would experience more inequality by the end of his years in office than it had had since the 1920s. There is no reason that Ronald Reagan had a secret agenda to create the inequities that flowed from his beloved principles. But they did nonetheless, or it did nonetheless. The national debt tripled when he was in office. The trade deficit went up 400%. Although consumer, consumers increased their expenditures across the board, and the GN, GNP nearly doubled in eight years. But the benefits were not shared equally. In 1989, the richest two-fifths of, of, of American families had 67.8% of all of the wealth and the poorest two-fifths only 15.4%. This, that latter number was the lowest number in 40 years. The number of children living in poverty increased 24% over the course of the Reagan years. And in 1988, when he left office, 20% of all children in this country lived in poverty. Although not all, of course, were people of color, indeed, most poor Americans were and remain white, Black ex life expectancy in the last two years of the Reagan years dropped each year. And as we know, life expectancy is one of the surest signs of the health of a community. Currently, 18% of American children live in poverty, so our number is not much better. It's a minor improvement over the end of the Reagan years era and is probably linked to the child tax credit of the pan pandemic period. But we even now have not returned to the stats of the 1970s when fewer American children lived in poverty. We have a lot of work to do in this country, if I may say so. Now, the income inequality in this country is even worse today than it was during the Reagan era, but maybe a product, I would argue, of some of the rethinking that went on in American popular culture about taxes and sacrifice. Now, I've talked about the domestic side. Uh, Reagan's foreign policy, especially in the Middle East, uh, was a mess. Despite the posturing, the United States projected weakness in his years in office, especially in the Middle East. I know that will sound unexpected. Um, I haven't written a book about Ronald Reagan, but I did write a, a history of uh, U.S. counterterrorism. I, I was a consultant to the, as, as Clark mentioned, the 9-11 Commission, I wrote an unclassified study of US counterterrorism activities um, on, until uh, the, through the Clinton era. And it was my surprise, because I hadn't focused on this, to see what a mess Ronald Reagan had made about counterterrorism. The United States, under Ronald Reagan, pulled out of Lebanon under pressure from Iran's allies, Hezbollah, after US soldiers died uh, in an airport uh, attack at a barracks at an airport in Beirut, and after the U.S. Embassy had been bombed twice, the U.S. actually responded by pulling out. Um, 
The United States had been in Lebanon as part of a UN multinational mission uh, to protect Arabs. The United, in fact, the PLO had wanted the United States in Lebanon to protect the PLO from Israel. Uh, but the US pulled out of that war-torn country. Um, then after pulling out in a humiliating fashion, the United States secretly negotiated with the country that had sponsored the murderers that killed our Marines in Beirut, Iran. Um, uh, the, the US in 1986 bombed Libya as a way of sending a signal uh, that uh, state-sponsored terrorism was unaccepted, acceptable to the United States. Uh, Gaddafi survived, not only survived, but he continued terrorism because he had his people bring down a Pan-American flight in 1988. So the United States bombs Libya and manages only to enrage Gaddafi further, who continues his terrorism against Americans and others. So in the Middle East, the United States was humiliated in the Reagan era because, well, it just was. In, in Central America, the United States uh, supported authoritarian counter-revolutions that contradicted Reagan's language of democracy and, reform and, and freedom. I have to say that I am certainly sympathetic with the concerns the Reagan administration had about the Sandinistas. Um, you may know that in Nicaragua, the poor people of Nicaragua now have had their freedom stolen from them yet again by uh, Daniel Ortega, who is the, was the Sandinista leader in the 1980s and came back to power and came back in a, in a free election and, and now has tried to deny future free elections. Nevertheless, the way in which the Reagan administration sought to to contain the Nic Nicaraguans was a, was a failure. The only place where Ronald Reagan uh, was able to increase the pressure um, with, with some with very important success was in Afghanistan, um, where the Soviets were ultimately pushed out. Um, but you know the trade-off there, whereas the, the United States found itself on the side of Islamists um, as a way of undermining Soviet power, and un unfortunately, those Islamists, once they got one superpower, then focused on another. However, Ronald Reagan deserves credit in a very important way for one aspect of his foreign policy. And I think it's important when studying presidents that you give the balance sheet, the full balance sheet. And in this case, Ronald Reagan's shift his flexibility and his approach towards the Soviet Union um, is, is something that will always deserve praise. Uh, he became a partner to Mikhail Gorbachev. Now, Mikhail Gorbachev is the catalyst for this. But the United States might have made it more difficult for Mikhail Gorbachev to undertake the, the reforms in his country that ultimately led to the collapse of the Soviet Union. I will make clear that Gorbachev did not wish to dismantle the Soviet Union. That was not his objective. He wanted to return to a more effective system. It didn't work. The United States became his partner, and Ronald Reagan was his first partner. So in a sense, just as Nixon uh, showed creativity and courage in going to Beijing to work with Mao, Reagan shifted his view of the Soviet Union and began to work uh, with Gorbachev in Moscow. There's one big difference between Nixon and Reagan. Nixon did it out of Machiavellian realpolitik. N Reagan was a more emotional, 
man. He did out of passion. He sensed he could trust Gorbachev. Nixon never thought he could trust the Chinese. Um, that passion effectively conveyed to the Gorbachevs and was an important element in the trust that actually developed between the two leaderships. And that is Reagan's alone. Gorbachev would have achieved a lot, but without the other superpower being his partner, it's hard to imagine uh, the peaceful transition that we ultimately saw in power. And Reagan was the first to start that process. On the American side, it was completed by George H.W. Bush. Now, Reagan's political shadow is much longer than these two elements. Like FDR and JFK, for different reasons, he reshaped the American political elite. People following Reagan wanted to be like Reagan. Young Republicans ran to be like Reagan, just as young Democrats wanted to be the next JFK, and young Democrats wanted to be the next FDR. But he shares with only FDR his ability to alter deep-seated assumptions in our political culture. From 1988 until 2016, for nearly 30 years, any Republican who hoped to win the nomination hungered for a kissing of hands, to use a wonderful British term, at the Reagan Library for Mrs. Reagan. I remember young Marco Rubio, not so young, but he certainly was young, younger then than he is now, for example, sought the mantle of Reaganism in 2016 and seemed to get it, but of course, as we know, he didn't get the nomination. Much as JFK sought the support of Eleanor Roosevelt over 50 years earlier, Trump, Donald J. Trump, suspended this Reagan tradition. But since the 2022 midterms, it seems to have been revived by the RNC as a counter-narrative. We will see how the Ronald Reagan revival fares against the Trump restoration. We can talk about that in Q&A, maybe. But I want to talk about yet another shadow. And that's another shadow associated with Ronald Reagan's presidential legacy. And it comes from Reagan's ideas about making America great again. It, it was his turn. It's borrowed by somebody else. Whereas Reagan altered his view of Soviet leaders, he never rethought his assumptions about race in America. He was trapped in the 1950s worldview that, that saw black America as just another political constituency, like Jews, Irish Catholics, labor, etc., He never embraced the view that the legacy of Jim Crow, let alone slavery, mandated a different approach to black America, different from singing the praises, for example, of home ownership, which rang hollow to a group that had been denied the mortgage benefits of the GI Bill, to give one powerful example, because of the color of their skin. Reagan was insensitive to this. And there may have been more than just insensitivity and ignorance. Reagan's approach to Africa, his preference, when he was a candidate at least, for the apartheid governments of Rhodesia and South Africa, and his comments to Richard Nixon in October 1971 about African leaders and diplomats, something I wrote about and can talk about later, suggest another kind of blinkered thinking. It suggests a form of racism. Ronald Reagan thought less 
of Africans and spoke in racist terms about them, whatever may have been in his heart. And one of the most difficult things for a presidential observer is to figure out what's in a person's heart. I don't know what was in his heart. I know what he said. Reagan, um, Reagan ultimately turned on South Africa, but it was late in the game in 1986 and suggested a more coming to terms with the change in South Africa than a moral reckoning on his part. So the limits of Reagan's belief in mankind, whatever element of racism that involved, places limits, I think, on the lasting power of his small government philosophy. Of course, altogether too many Americans are comfortable with a racist argument underlying um, states' rights or small business, small government. Not every libertarian believes in small government because of race. But in Reagan's case, unfortunately, there's a taint that undermines, will undermine in the future, the power of his small government philosophy, or at least his legacy in it, as we as a country, I hope, move further and further away from the racism of the 1950s, which of course hasn't gone away yet. I must note that when, when this information about Reagan, which actually came from the Nixon Library, was made public, Patty Davis, his daughter, wrote a very powerful op-ed in the Washington Post. Some of you may have seen it. She, was, she started crying when she heard this, this tape of her father. And she said, you know, I have to say, I, these words are unconscionable and there's no defense for them. But I want you to know that at our kitchen table, my father, Ronald Reagan, said that racism was toxic and poisonous. And so she had and continues to have a, a, a tough time reconciling some of the evidence and the man that she knew. So I'm, I'm limiting what I say about what was in his heart. I, don't, I just don't know. The fact that Ronald Reagan sold his small, biz, small government approach with dog whistles and sometimes overt mischaracterizations of black America will continue to create understandable cynicism. But I said we have to keep in mind the balance sheet. And in, our, in this era, uh, for all his flaws, and he had many, uh, Ronald Reagan not only loved this country, um, he loved our Constitution, and like the best of our presidents, he loved the Constitution more than himself. And he saw the, the White House and the presidency as a job that was bigger than himself, though he thought he was very good at it. And he believed in the dignity of the office. He always wore a tie when he worked. I'm not suggesting that you have to, but in his case, he did it because of the enormity of the office and the respect which he gave to it. And in this era, um, that is a very comforting idea, a sense of dignity, a sense of civility, and a sense of knowing that something is bigger than oneself. If you have any questions, I welcome them. How would you describe Nixon's perception of Reagan? Have seen 
more success that, that Nixon never had while practicing himself oh. being more educated. Oh, boy. Building the coalition in 72 that Reagan then used. Oh, yeah. Kind of, what, what, it's a little bit of a psychological question, I suppose, but. <laughs> I'm smiling. I'm, I'm smiling. It's a great question. I'm smiling because uh, um, we have a pretty good sense of what Nixon had in his heart um, because Nixon was voluble and taped himself musing about a lot of different things. I mean, we have 3,000 plus hours of, we, the American people, I, I'm, I'm not at the Nixon Library anymore. We, we own it. Uh, Nixon thought Reagan was a dope. He thought he was an idiot. <laughs> no, I mean, no, it's, it's on tape. He thought Reagan was just, a, he completely underestimated Reagan. He, he thought he wasn't very, so he thought he wasn't very smart. Uh, he thought, um, you know, he was just an actor. Uh, he thought he was incredibly right-wing. I mean, Nixon, uh, Nixon had his own fights with, with sort of John Birch Society, um, Goldwater Republicans. They're not the same thing, but it's the sort of outer edge. Uh, and he considered Reagan one of those. So when he thought of Reagan, he knew that, that, that Reagan could command votes. So he didn't underestimate Ronald Reagan's sort of political footprint, but he didn't really think much of the man. Um, there is a, um, there's a list that survived of potential vice presidential candidates when Reagan, when Nixon had to replace um, Spiro Agnew, and Reagan is on that list. He's not top of the list. Actually, a, a Southern Democrat, Southwestern Democrat named John Connolly is at the top of the list. Okay, fast forward to the post-presidency for Nixon's post-presidency. Nixon was a, a, a public a critic of Ronald Reagan's um, approach to Mikhail Gorbachev. Nixon thought that Reagan was too passionate about Gorbachev, that Reagan was not um, Machiavellian enough. Uh, in fact, it, um, not only did, did uh, Richard Nixon make this argument, but Henry Kissinger made this argument, and they both suggested uh, cozying up to uh, a man named Boris Yeltsin, who uh, would, of course, become president of, of Russia. But at that point, Boris Yeltsin was a, a very ambitious uh, Soviet politician in Moscow. So they, uh, uh, Richard Nixon publicly criticized Ronald Reagan for being uh, too close to uh, Mikhail Gorbachev. So I, I think in Reagan's case, uh, in Nixon's case, there was some a little bitterness, um, disappointment and shock that Ronald Reagan, you know, became Ronald Reagan. Yes? Hi, thanks for being here. My name is Laura Ballman. I have two questions. Go ahead. Uh, you talked about uh, the American public's perception of the failure of experts. And I'm wondering if you could comment a little bit about what, if you're seeing any of that today in some context. And then two, uh, Realizing we don't, you don't have the benefit of history at this point, how would you assess how the current president is dealing with the new Cold War, uh, if you agree it's a new Cold War between democracy and uh, authoritarianism, i.e. Russia and China? Thank you. you oh, thank you. Great questions both. Uh, well, quickly, yes, about, yes, and in, in, in a sense I was seeding the clouds. Uh, um, uh, I was foreshadowing my sense that, that that we are experiencing the same thing, and that, and that, and that um, we are in a period of, of intense mistrust of government. Now, Americans, we Americans have always been skeptical of government. That's part of who we are. 
But there's a difference between cynicism and skepticism. I always try to make the distinction to my students. as it's, it's okay if you're skeptical. I want you to be. Just don't be cynical. You're way too young. But I don't care how old one is. Cynicism is never a good thing. So yeah, I, I think that we're in, the, we're in the same situation. And, and in this case, <clears throat> it's, it's, it's the difficulties of dealing with the pandemic. Um, but even before the pandemic, um, uh, it, 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 had, it was the Great Recession. I think the Great Recession um, really changed American political culture. Um, um, Barack Obama was reelected, but but I think we there was a there's a sort of earthquake in American political culture that, that occurred because of the Great Recession, and 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 it's Washington that failed, particularly particularly middle class America, but not only middle class America. The new Cold War. We are not in a new Cold War. Um, the Soviet Union was a much more powerful state than Russia. Uh, the Russians. Um, are good at certain forms of asymmetrical psychological warfare, but they're not perfect at it. Um, I don't know how long this will be the case, but Moldova managed to hold on. Um, um, and we see that the Russians are having a hell of a time in the field. So I, I don't think it's in the interests of us as Americans to see this as a Cold War, because that makes them stronger than they are. As a regional crisis for Europe, this is a big deal. Because Europe, uh, Russia is a major regional power. And Europe is facing a real struggle over democracy versus authoritarianism because of the power of far-right groups. Um, Le Pen is still a factor in France. Uh, Orban is the leader of Hungary. Uh, although the far-right in Germany is a small, they're a small percentage, uh, they I don't want to be too conspiratorial in this, but there is evidence now that their allies have wormed their way into the German national security bureaucracy that was a, a mole that was just found. And um, it looks like the chain, the courier chain involved members of the German military. And it appears that they are also members of the, um, I guess is Alternative für Deutschland, the, the far right. Uh, party. So I see, see that, and we uh, will play our role, and I think we're doing it brilliantly, of helping. Um, but, and this is, this is something for us to think about as Americans. I, 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 I'm, not, I'm not so wise that I know what's the right thing to do. But I think, really, uh, but, I, but I think that sometimes it's okay if we don't make it about us versus somebody else. I think it's OK. But we're still the leader. And I think the Biden administration is trying to walk that very narrow line. Because, and I, I can go on about this, and I can't, and I want to take more questions. So, but this is so important. Uh, and I. I'm critical of the way the Biden administration pulled out of Afghanistan. So, but on this, they were brilliant. The way they shared intelligence before February 24, 2022, initially with NATO and Ukraine and then with the world, laid the groundwork for political change in Germany that has helped the cause of freedom in Ukraine. If the United States tried to force Germany to close the uh, 
Nord Stream 2 down. Public, it would have been a disaster. The Germans would have pushed back in a matter of sovereignty. And within Germany, it's a fragile coalition in support of helping in armed conflict would have disappeared. Uh, and, and so I, I think that, Ger and it's Germany that, that, that launched the first really stinging sanctions against Russia, not America, after the invasion. Now, I don't believe this was by accident. I believe someday we will learn this was choreographed and the US was behind the scenes doing this, but it was behind the scenes doing it. Now, one of the things we don't like sometimes as Americans is to be behind the scenes. Barack Obama got into a lot of trouble. It was a bad choice of words. He was such a wordsmith. But you know what? Presidents produce a lot of words, so I have to say the wrong ones. When he said leading from behind, you may remember this was in, during the Libya. And Americans don't like that. We don't lead from behind. Well, sometimes, sometimes that's smart. And I think we've done that. So I wouldn't call it a cold I, I, I resist the idea that this is a cold war. Everyone, I'm afraid that. Oh, I'm sorry. Tim, could you stick around for a minute? Yeah, sure. Sure, of course. Please join me in thank you. Thank you. Happy President's Day. Mark, I loved it. This was just great.